Hey, this is San Jose calling. Will someone go pick up my carpet aerial? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mike. And I'm Steve. And we don't know what we're doing. That's right. Each week we choose a topic that we don't know much about, and then we spend way too much time learning about it. And then we pass all this knowledge to y'all. If we want to call it knowledge. It's kind of more just like the wasted time that we spent on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What are we talking about today? Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, inventions in our hood. Yeah. So this is stuff that was kind of... Uh, made here in Silicon Valley, but it's like lesser known um, things, not necessarily tech, but stuff we didn't really know was made here. Yeah, there were some surprising things that uh, I didn't know that was out here. Yeah, I think uh, I didn't actually know about most of the stuff. So Steve, yep. you're the one that came up with this idea. What led you to that? Uh, well, I kind of stumbled across uh, across this thing. This is when, I think it was last weekend, uh, we were watching, uh, of course, Stranger Things 2 on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the characters on there, Eleven, is obsessed with Eggo Waffles. Yes. And so I, for some reason during the show, I was I was like, man. I'm, I want a waffle? Yes. <laughs> but also watching the show, I was thinking, you know, the waffles were in so many episodes in season one. And it made me think like, oh, did Eggo make like a big profit spike mm-hmm. after that first season? So then I started like googling it and uh found out a whole bunch more information about it i went down like a time vampire into a, a wikipedia spiral on it Uh-oh. yeah and you're gonna share that knowledge with us yeah so All right so turns out that uh that ego waffles are are a san jose invention so we're gonna go back now to 1932 okay and this is the story of three brothers uh tony sam and frank dorsa uh, they got 50 bucks from their parents, and in their parents' basement, they started a company. And this is back, um, you know, kind of during the Depression. So it's really interesting that they uh, made a successful business out of a food. So they started making uh, mayonnaise made with fresh eggs. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and they also started making a, a little bit later on, they made a, a dry waffle mix. Um, and so the kind of key ingredient with these things was eggs. And so... Um, it was Ego Foods. That's how they kind of named their company. So um, move on a little bit later. Uh, the Depression ends. Um, you know, World War II comes and goes. And then in the 1950s, there's a huge craze for uh, ready-made foods. For, you know, the... Like TV dinners? Yeah, all, all kinds of stuff. TV dinners, stuff you can uh, pop in the oven, pop in um, and, you know, like pull out of the freezer and, mm-hmm. and just heat quickly. Uh, so people weren't buying the waffle mix as much anymore. So uh, Frank, uh, he was an inventor, and he wanted to turn this problem into a solution. And so he created this, uh, what's described as a, a merry-go-round style machine full of waffle irons. So basically, this was like a constantly rotating contraption full of waffle irons, and workers on one end would pour in the batter, and they would cook as it went around, and then a worker on the other end would pull them off, and then they would basically flash freeze these waffles. Wow. Yeah. What a waffle assembly line. Yeah, basically. Um, and so originally, the product was called Froffles, <laughs> because it was a combination of frozen and waffles. So it became super popular, uh, but then uh, just a couple of years later, uh, they they changed the name to uh, Eggo Waffles in 1955. 
Um, so of course, super, super popular. And, uh, you know, a decade or so later, uh, Kellogg's buys them in 1968. But I think it's what's interesting is that uh, this factory was pretty pretty close to our house here. This factory was at uh, uh, Julian and the 101 on Ego Way, so <laughs> not far from here at all. Ego Way. No, is there a Fruffle Way? I doubt it. That sounds Fruffle sounds like a Muppet or it does sound like that's exactly what I thought. I thought yeah, of a Muppet. It's weird, right? Yeah. yeah. Should we should draw a Fruffle? We should. I'll let you do that. What would a fr- what what would that look like? Would it be like a oh. Muppet body with a a waffle smashed head? Maybe, or it has like really big eyes and fluffy, I don't know. Yeah, fluffy waffle like parts. a fraggle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. But yeah. So I mean, Ego Ego is really huge now. Uh, Ego has seventy three percent of the frozen waffle market in the United States. So that's a lot of waffles that people are eating. Um, and it's estimated that more than half of American households eat uh, breakfast waffles. And what percentage are you in that? That's probably um, a solid 40% of those are in my <laughs> stomach at any given time because I really like Eggo waffles. Oh, Eggo waffles are good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's just funny that they are sort of embedded in our, like, kind of subconsciously in our culture. I mean, I grew up knowing the whole, like, Lego my Eggo jingle. I mean, that's been on since the 70s when, when it was created in the 70s, so... I know, just funny. And the funny thing about Stranger Things is uh, they didn't they didn't officially license that from Kellogg's at all. The writers uh, just wrote it into the show organically, and and it stuck and became a thing. Huh. So yeah, so it's funny though because I started this whole thing with looking up did they have a profit spike and oh, yeah, I, did you ever figure that out? Sort of. It, there wasn't a whole <laughs> lot of clear information, but it could be because right around the same time they had like a, a listeria outbreak and had to recall a lot of waffles. Oh. So. No kind fruffle of, for you. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm going to get in there and get some fruffles. I ain't afraid of no listeria. Yeah. I like fruffle. I really like that word for some reason. Maybe right. I like saying it. Fruffle. Maybe that's your drag name. Fruffle. Yeah. <laughs> fruffle a waffle. No. no. We don't like that? No, we right. don't like that. Moving right. on. Moving on. So that was my first my first invention. What did you get? So uh, the one I got would actually uh, kind of tied into my life. Okay. Uh, I mean, waffle. Ego waffles were as well because I grew up eating them. No, that's my life. Well, I'm older than you, so... I know, that's true, and I'm never going to let you forget that. <sighs> Anyways, um, <laughs> so we talked about the uh, Bradley fighting vehicles. Oh, yeah, for last week. Yeah. yeah, so the company that made them is out here, Bay Systems. Like, so funny. What up, Bay? What up, Bay? Yeah. Want to come drive my tank? <laughs> no? No. All right. <laughs> Actually, um, I guess it'd be more like, sup, Bay? You like this tank I got? Oh. No. I mean, we're in so bay. Oh, God. Let's move on. Okay. So, um, yeah, they're a San Jose aerospace company, and they manufactured the Bradley, uh, the Bradley Fighting Vehicle for over 30 years. It's funny you always have trouble saying that, because you drove the thing. I just said Bradley. Oh, we didn't okay. say the Bradley okay. Fighting Vehicles. Well, you can just say Bradley from okay. now on. Now on, listeners, we're going to be saying Bradley. Bradley. <clears throat> not, not my cousin, but the tank. Yes. Okay. So, uh... Yeah, they created that out here. They also created the uh, M113 Armored Personnel Carrier. What's which that? Which was a precursor to the Bradley. It's another ta- uh, tank-like vehicle. Oh, so uh, what's the difference between the Bradley and the Personnel Carrier? Uh, the Bradley had a, a turret on top oh. with a 25-millimeter Bushmaster. So was the other thing more or less just like a kind of armored truck, but without a gun? Kind of, yeah. Okay. A little fast truck okay. that was on tracks. Got it. Okay. Um 
Yeah, so the Bradley Fighting Vehicle was uh, began production in 1981, mm. and uh, it was named after World War II v- um, General Omar Bradley. Huh, okay. Yeah, and uh, it's known as a lightly armored, fully tracked transport vehicle used in mechanized infantry. Which, which is was what you were. What I was. What you were. Yes, yeah. mechanized infantry. Yeah. Uh, it has a 25 millimeter M- M242 Bushmaster. What the hell does that mean? Cannon. Oh, why don't we just say it has a cannon? Yeah, it has a cannon that was uh, shot 25 millimeter uh, ammo hmm. bullet things. They're huge. They're yeah. Big. Um, it had a tow anti tank missile, and tow stands for tube launched, optically tracked, wire guided. So it had a wire, like. Went out with it. Went shot out with the with the with the with cannon the, with the missile. Oh, weird! This big giant missile. What the wire do? Helped guide it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I remember we had to go pick them up, and it was like, what's that like sitting out. inside that thing when those things shoot off? I mean, does the whole entire thing just like kind of explode and rumble? Yeah, it's weird. Shakes. Yeah, it's loud. I mean, luckily when it, I was a driver. And when we're driving and that's shooting off, you have to have the the hatch closed. Yeah, and the hatch is pretty like really thick. Okay, but yeah, you definitely like feel it. You see the flash. That mm. yeah, was crazy. When you drove it, did your head stick out the top? You you can do that. Yes and no. Oh, like uh, if you were just like going around and it was like safe and you weren't going too fast, yeah. you could have it up. Okay, but when you're going fast, you had to have it closed. I see. Because you don't want to, you know hurt yourself with a flying duck in your face or something a flying duck yeah it's a pretty low flying duck i mean there could be flying floffle or froffles frozzles that's what it was it was a flying froffle <laughs> <laughs> okay go on go uh, on yeah so uh so it also carried uh three crew uh, okay the driver the tank commander and the gunner mm-hmm. and is that kind of like the situation you had yeah there were three of you guys yeah there were three of us okay so i was in the driving seat which mm-hmm. was the Kind of the best one because you got to be right next to the heater. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, because you said it was you. Oh, you man. were in Korea and it was really cold. Yeah, I got real cold. But that heater like a little space nice. heater or what? No, it was no, not a space heater. Like it a big exhaust port, basically, basically sticking up your butt. Yes, yes. <laughs> nice. Not, I mean, not up my butt. I know. I know. You know my I mean. butt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, it held three crew and then also six infantry soldiers in the back. And so, and also, wow. so it held nine people total at yes. one point. Wow. Yeah. And I guess it could be more, but it wouldn't be like legal to. Got it. Okay. Or up to standards to hold more. I see. I do um, believe I saw a picture of you with more than nine people beside a Bradley. Beside it. Yeah. But that, oh, that, yeah, yeah. That was what, there were a bunch of other Bradleys around. You oh, they just it. weren't in the frame. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then in the back, there was a ramp that would come down and the, the troops could get out huh. that way. Okay. Or there was also look like a little hatch door that would open up ah. so they can get out that way as well, huh. depending on what the situation called for. Cool. Uh, so let's see some, so some interesting things about the Bradley. Okay. Uh, in 1985, there was a joint live fire test program where the U S um, shot U S and Russian ammo th- at it at a full, fully loaded Bradley. They shot at it? Yeah. Okay. Because they wanted to test and see, like, oh, to see, how, like, would it blow up or yeah, whatever. Okay. the survivability of it. And that didn't go well. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I'm guessing it did blow up? Uh, Yeah. I think it melted. It melted? Blew, and, yeah, it was aluminum. It was all bad. Oh, wow. Um, So because of that, there were some modifications in 1988, which was the M2A2 and the M3A2. Okay. And actually, the one that uh, I, I was in was the M2A2 and the M2A2 ODS, 
which was the so basically you weren't you were you were driving the not death trap version yes okay i think they took that out because of the death trap (laughs) i would hope so but Um, you never know an interesting story about that is that um there's actually a movie about it about the bradley okay about the the craziness that happened with the bradley and okay the pentagon uh, and a book. The book is called "The Pentagon Wars: Reform Reformers Challenge the Old Guard," and it was by Air Force Colonel James G. Burton. Sounds riveting. <laughs> well, basically, in the book, he tells of uh, how the Pentagon was spending all this money, lying to the public, lying to other people, like oh, uh, like uh, a conspiracy cover-up kind of situation. Basically, okay. so they were spending all this money on these products and these um, vehicles and uh, devices. Yeah, and Either they weren't up to par or they just didn't work at all. Hmm. <laughs> and the Bradley was one of these things. Oh, great. So he called out the Bradley and he said that, hey, this is not a good thing. Like, it's going to, it's not good for soldiers and y'all need to, like, really test it. Yeah. So the <laughs> the army, I guess, allegedly, according to him, the army did some the test, like I talked about earlier. But instead of having it full of like live ammo and yeah. like a real test, mm-hmm. they swapped everything out and they took all the ammo out and they put the uh, instead of fuel cans inside, they took the fuel cans out and put them with water cans. Oh, just so, to cheat? Yep. Oh, so great. when they shot it, they're like, "Hey, look, it's great! Like they didn't explode. It's not giving out poisonous gases. Like it's cool." Well, Everybody that's because water doesn't do those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he he kept trying to push and push and push. He wasn't able to go anywhere, and they kept like brushing him off. Uh-huh. And he eventually quit the armed forces. And um, after that, the Congress decided that they, hey, we want to see an actual live fire, like no craziness of y'all swapping stuff out. Like we wanted to see how it would actually work. Okay. So that goes back to the 1988, um, or I'm sorry, 1985 test, which like didn't they go did so well, it, and it yeah. didn't go so well. And then they're like, well. We need to fix this. Okay. And luckily they did, and I'm alive, and a lot of other people are alive well, because good. of it. Then again, nobody probably ever actually shot at you. Not at me personally. Oh. I mean, not, th- I mean, not in the Army. Yeah. Uh, 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 okay. Yeah. Sounds like a story for later. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, so the last other fun fact about that is that I read that <laughs> Uh, less than a mile away, they do some training. Oh, they, really? They run the oh, tra- still? The Bradleys, yeah. Oh, interesting. Because Bay Systems has some land like uh, not too far away from us. Oh, how funny. Right next to the Avaya Stadium. Funny. Yeah. I remember when we first moved here, I had read an article that uh, uh, the the San Jose Earthquakes, the soccer team here, um, before Avaya Stadium was built, mm-hmm. that used to be like their practice field. And it was just like ground level, just whatever. It was practice field. Mm-hmm. And I had read an article when we first moved here that one of the Bradleys had crashed through a barrier onto their field. That's that's the article that I read. Yeah, oh, it funny. had the the barrier that it ran over. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I think that was like right when we moved up here. Yeah, it's funny. How funny. Well, that's cool. Like a little piece of uh, your history mm-hmm. right, right here. Right like here. Almost literally in our backyard. Yeah, in our hood. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, should we move on? Yeah, let's move on. So what's uh, the next one that you have? Okay. Um, the next one I have is uh, something that is uh, special to, to my, my not history, but my interests. More waffles? Uh, Ice cream. Waffles. Froffles. Froffles. <gasps> uh, no, this is not food. This is my other obsession. Uh, this is uh, modern roller coasters oh. were created here in Silicon Valley. 
So I uh, am super obsessed with roller coasters. Yeah, as my, he, all of my friends know, he really is. Like it's a problem. It's a big problem. Yeah. Um, but uh, back in the '40s, here in in Sunnyvale, uh, there were four guys working together in a machine shop, and their names were Andy Anderson, Carl Bacon, William Hardiman, and Ed Morgan. So these guys are all working in a machine shop. They're friends, and uh, the company goes into a union conflict, and there's a labor dispute. And anyways, this labor dispute uh, kind of inspires them to start their own company. So they they spin off and they incorporate a company called Aero Development in 1945 with uh, uh, their first office in Mountain View. And originally, all they did was they sold um, used machine tool parts and uh, and truck parts and stuff like that. So um, they were pretty successful in their early days, and they ended up doing some some bigger contracts for companies like Stanford and uh, the U.S. Navy and Hewlett Packard, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so they're kind of getting some some recognition. They're getting bigger projects. And then one day, um, Ed Morgan read a newspaper article about Disneyland that was being under construction, under concept uh, down in Southern California. And I... Yep. And he knew, uh, you know, Disney, of course, at that time was huge. Uh, they did, you know, TV presentations every week and this and that. And so, so he writes a letter to Disney and um, pitches this, like, basically like a, a mini steamboat that they had made for some other project previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Imagineering writes back and says, we're not interested in that, but we see that you've made um, amusement ride cars for other companies up there. And we're interested in that. So this is um, in the 50s and during the the conception and construction of Disneyland. So Imagineering sends them a sketch of a ride vehicle for Mr. Toad. And they build the first prototype. It's a success and they get the contract. And what was that from? The Wind in the Willows? From Wind in the Willows, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so successful was this initial partnership that six of the original attractions that opened with Disneyland were designed here in Silicon Valley. Oh, which six? Um, so I can't remember all of them, but, uh, so Mr. Toad, of course, okay. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, uh, the teacups, okay. Dumbo, uh, the Dumbo s- ride, he's, he's like flying. Yep. Flying. Oh. Dumb, yeah. Snow White. Uh, I can't remember the others, but there were six total. So it's basically fantasy. Land. Fa- yeah. Ba- basically. Yes. <laughs> fantasy land. Um, and then, so this is like a, a huge partnership that ended up lasting, um, multiple decades. Uh, but these guys, even though they weren't the Imagineers that did the story for these rides and, and the art and the beautiful art direction and all that, these were the guys that actually constructed and designed the actual mechanical ride system. So they did, um, they even on to do Autopia. They did Alice in Wonderland, uh, the boat and flume system for Pirates of the Caribbean, mm. the Omnimover system for Haunted Mansion, uh, the boats and flumes for Small World, et cetera, et cetera. So all these amazing classic attractions at Disneyland while they were designed and um, scripted and concepted and written in Southern California, mm-hmm. the actual mechanisms were, were made and crafted and engineered here in Silicon Valley. And you said Mountain View? Mm-hmm. Oh, not yep. too far. So, but the big one I want to talk about is actually, uh, this was the big innovation. So back in 55, when Disneyland was built, uh, there was a huge pile of dirt next to the castle because they had dug all the stuff out for the castle and then there was this huge pile of dirt. And it ended up becoming a bit of a lover's lane, which Walt, of course, did not like because that didn't fit in with the, the image of Disneyland. Yeah. And so <laughs> he wanted to do something on that site because it was a big plot of land and 
as they were going to build the the Skyway, which were the sort of the gondolas that went from Tomorrowland to Fantasyland, mm-hmm. um, he suddenly had a vision, and he was in inspired by uh, the Swiss Alps. He was in Switzerland filming uh, The Last Man on the Mountain, which was a Disney movie at the time. Mm-hmm. And he, the story goes that he got a postcard there and sent it back to an Imagineering, and it just said, hi, build this, basically. <laughs> and so his vision was that he wanted to build a Matterhorn. Matterhorn. Exactly. <gasps> the Abominable Snowman? Well, that came much later, actually. Oh. Originally, Matterhorn was very different than today. It, it was actually originally like all open inside, so mm-hmm. you still had the mountain outside that you didn't have the full like cave pathway underneath the track. Ooh. It was sort of just like open underneath. Oh, interesting. And it used to have the gondolas used to go through it. It was full of holes and all that stuff. Oh, weird. Um, but the reason that Matterhorn is so innovative, two things. It was the first steel roller coaster to use tubular track. So before this, roller coasters were either wooden mm-hmm. or they used this kind of like janky flat track with steel wheels, which it provided a rough ride. So this was the first time they were using polyurethane wheels mm-hmm. on top of tubular steel track. And that allowed them to make things uh, tighter curves and the smoother ride. Well, quote unquote smoother. I don't know if you've ridden it lightly. That thing is not smooth. But by comparison, I guess. Would you call it totally tubular? Totally tubular. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then the other big innovation on this thing was that uh, this was the first ride to use a, a block brake system. And... So basically a block brake system is, you know, everybody knows that a roller coaster has brakes at the end, obviously mm-hmm. to get you to stop. But a block brake system is there are, are brakes mid-course, and that allows uh, the park to run more than one train on the same track at a time. And it's just for safety so that if something happens and the train's back up down the line, they can stop the next one coming before it crashes in. I mean, so that's th- a good thing. Yes, which is, is logical. It's on like every big roller coaster now for, for many, many decades now. But Matterhorn was the first one to use that. So huge, huge innovation. And uh, and obviously Disney sees the value in this company because eventually Disney ended up owning a third of, of air development. And they only owned it for about 10 years. Um, but this kind of sparked, this this sparked Arrow's huge uh, like career of, of innovation and creativity in the amusement park industry. So Arrow went on through the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s to create some of the biggest, most amazing rides that we still enjoy today. So some of the things that they were huge innovators on were the modern log flume system, so, like, the first log flume that they opened at Six Flags Over Texas. I love that one. Oh, are you paying attention now? I'm paying attention. Mike's been an ass over here. He's been taking selfies of himself for no, the last... No, I've been trying to take pictures. Mm-hmm. Process pictures. He's been taking selfies over here for the last five minutes. Whatever. And I've been swatting at him. Yes. Anyway, so first uh, first log flume opened at Six Flags Over Texas in uh, 1963. That one was so good. Yeah. Uh, the first corkscrew coaster ever, because up to this point, they'd only had uh, vertical loops. And that was at Knott's Bray Farm in 1975. Uh, first suspended coaster, which is uh, their suspended coaster, was like uh, Ninja here or uh, yeah. or, or XLR8 at uh, Astro World. Accelerate all so, Astro World. Yeah, their, th- yeah, their first one was uh, the Bat at Kings Island in '81. Uh, first roller coaster to hit 200 feet, which was Magnum XL 200 at Cedar Point, 1989. We've been on that. Yep. And then, of course, uh, the first fourth dimension coaster, which is X at uh, Magic Mountain. Now X2. Yeah. XX2, dude. Because everybody is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, interesting story, but eventually they, they ran into financial trouble uh, throughout the, the 80s and 90s, and they, they changed ownership a bunch of times. Um, uh, you know, 
and you know the original guys sold off their shares in it and stuff so the the company doesn't even technically exist anymore the the intellectual property is owned by another company now uh which now provides the ride vehicles for things like buzz lightyear to disney so it's a little bit circular huh. interesting though they still have their hands in it yeah a little bit sort of in, in one way or another so I just think this is a super interesting story. Uh, I'm a roller coaster nerd. Uh, there's so much more to this story. Um, there's a fantastic documentary online that you can watch on YouTube for free. It's called The Legacy of Aero Development. Uh, this guy, Chris Robery, uh, made that. And it's it's pretty fantastic. He does a lot of kind of historical documentary stuff up here. But this is a really awesome piece. So if you are more interested in that, we'll, we'll post a link. I'm interested. I'm interested too. <laughs> yeah. Probably already saw it. No, I've not. I've not seen the whole thing yet. Actually, Ooh. yeah. But uh, yeah, this one was really cool. Yeah, yeah. And they also very made the, relevant to you. They also made the demon your favorite. Oh, that's so bumpy. You love it. It gives me a headache. You love it. All right, let's keep rolling here. All right. See what I did there? Rolling. Oh, totally <laughs> tubular. All right. What else you got? <laughs> um. So kind of a similar thing that we're doing now. Okay. Uh, radio stations. Oh, okay. So radio stations, uh, one of the first ones, there were two of them that were kind of around the same time. Okay. I'm trying to say that we, oh, we were the first one to be a radio station. Okay. It was uh, here and where else? Here in uh, in the East Coast. Okay. But let's talk about us. Yeah. Because it's all about us, right? Obviously. Obvi. So um, in on January 1st, 1909, Dr. Charles David Harold opened a obscure engineering and wireless school. And guess what he called it? Something fantastic, I'm sure. Yeah. Super humble. He called it Herald College of Engineering and Wireless. Wow. <laughs> Creative. <laughs> he must have been a writer. Uh, he could have been. All right. All right. He so he's definitely an school. inventor, though. Okay. Because we're about to get into this. Well, I know he's going right. to eventually invent radio here. So, uh, radio station. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So, Harold uh, created an enormous antenna call- he called a carpet aerial. That sounds so gross. I don't know why. That just sounds gross. It's a carpet aerial, Steve. All right, stop saying that. Carpet aerial. Stop it. Uh, he made a carpet aerial of 11,500 feet of wire that stretched between four buildings. So he was... Um, like I on believe, the roofs? I believe so. Or like wow. from building to building. Okay. Yeah. So he basically built this carpet aerial antenna mm-hmm. uh, to transmit the radio signals he wow. was going to make. And where was this? It was downtown. Downtown San Jose. Somewhere, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, so one of his active student, most active students in himself, uh, Ray Newby, he was 16 mm-hmm. years old. Uh, he was. The f- they were the first ones to transmit voice from the school in 1909. Hmm. They used a one-inch spark coil and carbon f- microphone connected to a storage battery. I don't know what that means, but it sounds very technical, and I trust that it's true. Yeah. I mean, it was it was on the internet, so it's okay. got to be true, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> so the the transmitter put out about 15 watts, and it was heard 20 miles away. 20 miles? Yeah. For only 15 for watts? For 15 watts. I wonder if that was because there weren't so many conflicting signals in the air at the it's time. possible. Or okay. maybe the... Because yeah, now they're like 10, 20,000 watts or whatever, right? The carpet aerial had something to do with it. You really need to stop saying that. Um, and so back then they didn't have call letters like we have now. Okay. Uh, and they referred to themselves as, this is San Jose calling. All right. Uh, this is San Jose calling. 
Will someone pick up? Hey, this is San Jose calling. Will someone go pick up my carpet aerial? So, keep going. So, they were eventually uh, regulated mm-hmm. with the Wireless Act of 1912. Okay. Uh, the government required stations to have call letters, and their call letters they were assigned was were FN. One nine oh nine. Okay, so nineteen oh nine. Nineteen oh nine. But what's the FN? I don't know. Hmm. Let's make something up. <gasps> Froffles. Froffle. Froffle now. No. Froffle. Froffle newbie, because the kid's name was newbie. Froffle newbie. There yeah. we go. I like that. Okay. Froffle newbie. One Froffle nine oh nine. Nu- Froffle newbie. Nineteen oh nine. This is still San Jose calling. Okay. So um, they kept going with the radio experiments, mm-hmm. and they became so popular that they started broadcasting entertainment programs. So they started reading local newspapers to give people the news. Mm-hmm. They played phonograph records. Oh, my God. Um, and uh, uh, Harold's wife, Sybil, she had her own little show called The Little Ham Club. And she would play records from the local record store and have giveaway contests. So she was like one of the first DJs. That's kind of cool. And one of the first female DJs, which is kind of interesting. And uh, let's see, what else? Uh, In 1921, uh, they got a new license, and their call letters then became KQW. KQW. That's not as cool as Froffle Newbie. No. 1909. Yeah. KQW. Okay, what would that stand for? Uh, KQW, King, Queen, Queen, Winer, Winery, King Winer? Queen Winery. All right, all right. KQW. We're good at this. We are. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. That's kind of basically it. Yeah. It kind of had some more history about um, uh, what they were doing with the wars and stuff, and oh. then they got taken over. Yeah. But the main thing about it was that it was kind of created here. That's which pretty is awesome. cool. That's fun. Yeah. And it does kind of relate to what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, podcasts are essentially uh, born out of radio. So yes. This is Mike and Steve calling. <laughs> this is Froffle Newbie 1909. <laughs> Get me on your carpet aerial. Ew. <laughs> uh, All right. Well, that was pretty cool. Yeah. So what do you got for us? All right. I have one more. Are you ready? I was born ready. Are you ready, Michael, for froffles? To go. Are you ready to go eat froffles where a kid can be a kid? Hmm. Why do I know that? <gasps> showbiz? Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese. Related to showbiz. Ah, because they probably Cheese. bought them up, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So check this out. So Chuck E. Cheese, which everybody knows, the you know, the rat, the pizza, blah, blah, blah. So, so Nolan Bushnell, the guy who founded Atari. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, back in, uh, back in the seventies, uh, he's at Atari. They're really successful already. Um, but you know, they're making these cabinet games, you know, back in the seventies, you know, video games, they weren't, uh, in everybody's home yet. You know, like you had the Atari, you know, the, uh, some of the Atari consoles, but it wasn't like today where everybody's got a switch and a PlayStation, whatever. So, or an arcade cabinet. Or an arcade cabinet. behind us. Yeah. Most people went to play video games at an arcade. Yes. So these were big, huge cabinets and whatever. And this is what Atari's uh, bread and butter was. Um, but uh, what he realized was that 
these these arcades were making a fortune. Coin-op games were making up to like $20,000 per cabinet over the life of that cabinet. Hmm. Uh, versus his, I think he said that they were they were selling the machines for like 1500 bucks. Wow. So if you think about the difference there between selling the actual product and operating the product, mm-hmm. that's that's a huge difference. So obviously Nolan decides, you know, I'm I'm in the wrong side of the business. So while he's at Atari, he starts coming up with this idea of like how he can kind of get into this business. But he didn't want to compete directly with the customers that they were selling to at Atari. Yeah. He wanted to differentiate. So he decided to go after the family market. And, you know. Nintendo. Yeah. Not not like (laughs) Nintendo. Nintendo doesn't have crappy pizza. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So he wants to go after the family market. Uh, So he starts developing this idea of a place where families would come and eat and play games and be entertained. So he comes up this he starts developing the idea and eventually he sells atari to warner communications but he keeps his ip for this pizza company idea um so what he does is he builds this place where families can come eat they can play games and kids can be kids and kids can be kids but he wanted to perfect this formula by figuring out a way to make them have a longer wait time to keep playing the games. <laughs> so he he knew that everybody liked pizza. Um, it was cheap to make, pretty hard to screw up. So they say. I think it tastes like cardboard when you go chicken cheese. But Ooh, it also had just a built in had a built in wait time because you would order your pizza for your family mm-hmm. and then you'd have to go sit there for twenty minutes while they make it. And during those twenty minutes, what's everybody going to do? They're going to go play the arcade games. Yes. That's what I did. Yep. So uh, so he starts doing this. And the other big uh, differentiator was that it had this animatronic show right from the beginning. Uh, it had this animatronic show of these, the you know, these kind of animated characters at the front of a, almost like a, it was like a stage. Like a, yeah, it's like a stage. But what would you call that room? Kind of like a ballroom auditorium kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But a place you eat. Yeah. Is that the way it was for you out here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was a concept from the beginning. So the very first store opens here in San Jose in 1977, uh, and it caught on extremely quickly, like extremely quickly. By 1980, uh, somebody had immediately copied their exact concept, and that company was a rival company called Showbiz Pizza. (gasps) They copied it? They copied it. (laughs) So there's a whole bunch to the story, which I'm not going to get into right now. It's complicated and dramatic, but essentially... Uh, some of the people that were helping make the animatronics uh, for for Chuck E. Cheese's mm-hmm. were kind of like contractors doing their own thing. They got wrapped into licensing it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. They created a rival show. So not exact characters, but exact same concept. Because huh. you had Showbiz Pizza, yeah, right? Yeah, which had a bear. The bear was the uh, main R- character. Right. So they didn't, have, they didn't have Chuck, who was a rat. You know, so... Um, but basically exact same thing. So of course, uh, he sues, um, and it takes a long time, but after two years in 1982, he wins and Shoba's pizza is basically ordered to give in and they have to pay $50 million. Wow. Uh, it was over like 14 or 15 years, but even then for 1982, $50 million was enormous, right? Yeah. So eventually over the years, all the locations become Chuck E. Cheese's, but, uh, the uh, the creator of the characters that showed this pizza refused to license them, which <laughs> is why you don't see those characters in Chuck E. Cheese anymore. They took them all out. And what were they called? Uh, the Rock. Rocka. Rocka something. Rocka something. Rocka. Rocka Fire Explosion? Yeah. I, I always think about five, five Nights at Freddy's when I see pictures of them. 
Rocket fire explosion. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Um, so, yeah. So they went from one store in 1977 up to today. They are the largest family entertainment chain in the U.S. with more than 500 stores in the U.S., Canada, South America, and the Middle East. Wow. So did you guys go to Chuck E. Cheese growing up? We or were we went show, I had, Showbiz yeah, Pizza? I, had, I remember birthdays at Showbiz. Yeah, I definitely had a birthday with crappy pizza and I remember we brought it we bought a cake from somewhere and took it in there. Hmm. There's actually pictures of me at a birthday there. Ooh. My terrible eighties haircut. I used to love going there because they had the uh like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. They had a lot of the four player games yeah. that you could play with your friends. Were the were the video games your favorite thing there? And ski ball, the ski ball. Yes, that's that's where it was at. Ski ball, because ski ball is where you got the tickets. Yeah, and the tickets get... is how you got the shitty prizes, <laughs> and that stupid candy that I loved, which was the colored dots on the paper. Do you remember that? You like that? Well, no one liked it, but you always wanted it. And then every time you would eat it, you're like, "This is gross. Give me more." <laughs> you're weird. My other big thing at Chuck E. Cheese was the ball pit. Did y'all have the ball pit? Oh yeah, ball yeah. pit. I used to love the ball fun. pit. Yeah, like a ball up. Uh, what would you call that now? A ball pit. Yeah, yeah, but like a... It's a cesspool of gross. There you go. That you want to hear a gross I... story about this? No, no. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No. Okay. When I was a kid, I remember we went to Chuck E. Cheese one time, and all of a sudden, mom, the moms were like, oh, my God, get out, get out. Some kid had loaded a diaper, and it fell off. Oh, that was... So disgusting. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think I ever went it again after that, but I, mean, I used to I love wouldn't. it. Hmm. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, <gasps> oh. this was this was a fun one. Yeah, and then we didn't talk about the uh, spooky thing about it, right? What? Oh, yeah, that's right. The, I suppose so, so. I don't know the story exactly, but maybe you do. But supposedly, the Chuck E. Cheese here in San Jose is haunted. Yeah. The original. I think it was something about a kid died there. Kid fell off the roof or something, or it was something. But yeah, the, yeah that one we can talk about it next yeah. year. I think it also holds the record for world's largest rat. <laughs> Like I'm not live joking. rat. No, not live rat. Oh. They have a giant Chuck E. Cheese uh, statue outside. outside. Uh, yeah, we can put it on the website and post it on yeah. Instagram. We'll terrify people <laughs> with the large rat. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that was my last one. Do you have more? Uh, I do have one more. Oh, okay. Let's let's hear it. All right. So, um, you ever wonder where fruit cocktail comes from? Not really. <laughs> but I assume it's from here, and I assume you're going to tell me all about it. Uh, yes and yes. Okay. So, um, in 1893, okay, uh, canner J.C. Ainsley of Campbell, okay, California, which is right right around the corner from here. Yep, uh, they began marketing a product called fruit salad. Okay, and they did it under the na- uh, the Golden Morn label. Mm. So I don't know. You w- was it actually good? Because fruit salad's way better than fruit cocktail. I don't know. I haven't had fruit salad. Yes, you have. Fruit salad's like what you make at home when you put like strawberries oh. and blueberries and the good stuff in it. The good stuff. Yeah. Fruit cocktail has good stuff too. Yeah. Sugar. Yeah. All right. Keep going. So uh, the fruit salad contained cherries and diced fruits. You know, of course we know that. Yeah. Uh, fruit cocktail was a way to use damaged fruit though. Oh. So then they didn't have to like. No wonder I don't like it. <laughs> oh, you're so elite. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, no, it, make, so it, was, it makes sense because yeah, it's all it's, cut up. It's put in a cup. Exactly. It's preserved. You don't care what it looks like on the outside. Exactly. Yeah. And it was a way to use that stuff instead of having to waste it. Yeah. It's uh, pretty smart. So supposedly, Herbert Gray of San Jose's Baron Gray Packing Company came up with the invention of fruit cocktail okay. in 1930. Okay. Uh, another person is also credited with coming up with fruit cocktail, fruit scientist Dr. William V. Kures. 
So multiple people are credited mm-hmm. with this? Both these two people are... These oh, this guys. is a co-creation. Yes. Okay, gotcha. You know what's interesting? I just realized is like the timeline. What did you say, 1930? 1930. Yeah. That's, uh, that's around the same time as the uh, the Eggo brothers were making their mayonnaise company. Yeah. I think a lot of fruit, food uh, interventions were happening then. And that makes sense with U.S. history because during the Depression, a lot of folks came out here to work in the agriculture industry. Mm-hmm. That's, that's interesting. It used to be full of trees and uh, orchards out here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, the fruit scientist, Dr. Chris, he helped develop the fruit cocktail and figured out the link between botulism and canned foods. Oh. He had tons. He did all this research, and it was super interesting like to kind of read briefly about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, his work led him to be involved with canners, dryers, olive processors, and winemakers. Oh. So he does things that we love and hold dear to our hearts. Like, like fruit cocktail? Like wine. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Back to fruit cocktail. Yeah. Uh, it premiered under the Del Monte name in 1938. Mm-hmm. And Del Monte, they had a, a, prosec- uh, a cannery out here. Yeah, yeah. Our friends live in the in the condos that are on that old site. Yeah, not too far away. Like what? Maybe yeah. two miles away? Yeah. Three? Actually, we uh, almost looked at a place to live there when we first moved here. Yeah, we could have lived in the place that created fruit cocktail. I mean, we still can if somebody moves out if we want to move, but I don't. So That's true. So... Uh, you might think, oh, fruit to- cocktail is just like all this fruit mixed in together or whatever. It's there's mostly actually, just like yellow stuff with a red thing. Yeah, it is. But there's actually like a specific set of regulations and rules for it to be called fruit cocktail. Wait, fruit cocktail is regulated? Yes. Oh, for God's sake. So if you go to the, the store, grocery store, you might see like fruit salad, fruit salad, or like uh, mixed fruit. Fruit, fruit cup. Mi- yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. But it has to have a specific set of... Uh, properties to be a fruit cocktail okay labeled as fruit cocktail do tell what are the properties <laughs> well it has to contain a certain percentage of a distribution of the pears grapes cherries peaches and pineapples to be marketed as fruit co- fruit cocktail all that stuff is in fruit cocktail mm-hmm. i always thought it was just like chopped up pizza nasty pineapple with like a half piece of sad cherry in it <laughs> no it has a bunch of stuff in it <sighs> And I don't it, know. Fruit cocktail to me was always just like that thing that came in school lunch that I like. I didn't want, so I gave away oh. or threw away. I, I don't like, like it. it. Mm, sweet. It's so tasty. sludgy. You don't like fruit, though. You're weird. I like apple pie. You, you don't like, like hot fruit. Hot fruit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it also has to fall in a certain percentage of weight. What? Yeah. It's super regulated. This apparently. is some hogwash right now. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah. I can go into the percentages, but it's no, no, we'll, I we'll get, get it. lost. Yeah, but yeah, I thought that was super interesting. That, that is interesting. Randomly, fruit cocktail. Was yeah, all, specific all these things, and made here. Yeah, all these things that we've talked about. Well, maybe not the Bradley, but most of the other stuff that we've talked about. There, these are all like everyday kind of things that we, you know, like a roller coaster is not a household thing, but most Americans experience those at least you know a couple times a year, and mm-hmm. all this other stuff is like household products or names, yeah, or ideas. So that's interesting. All the stuff was was started here. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, uh, do do you want to play a game really quick? Sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, while we were doing this, I found um, some interesting people uh, that are celebrities that are um, from San Jose. Okay. So we're gonna play from San Jose. Or not from San Jose. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Here we go. Paul from. Paul Reiser. From. Not from San Jose. Oh. Paul Reiser's from New York. Okay. Um, 
Um, Josh Holloway. He from, played. He played Sawyer on Lost. From San Jose. From San Jose. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We need a little ding sound in here. Um, <laughs> let's see who else. Barry Bonds. Not. Not from San Jose. Uh-huh. No. No. Um, Dustin Diamond, who played Screech on Saved by the Bell. From San Jose. From San Jose. That's correct. That's correct. Um, comedian Angela Johnson. Yes. Yes, she is from San Jose. Yeah. All right. Crystal Chip. Yeah. White House press secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Not. Correct. She ain't up from San Jose. <laughs> she ain't from my hood. She ain't from my hood. All right. The last one that I thought was surprising, and I'm just going to give you this one. He is from San Jose. Charles Martinet. Do you know who that is? Yes. Who is it? The voice of Mario? The Mario and Luigi. It's a me. Yeah. So he's from San Jose, too. Awesome. So it's kind of interesting. There's a whole bunch of other ones, too, but those were those are some of the neat ones for me. We should get him on here. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, Excuse me, Charles. Yeah. Um, can you be on our podcast? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I think this was a cool topic. Uh, you know, aside from the ones that we've talked about, there were a bunch of other uh, Bay Area in- inventions that I thought were really cool, too, which we, we won't go into now, but... Uh, this was cool. It was neat to kind of learn about uh, some stuff that was in our backyard. Yeah, and this is kind of your extended backyard because you're from uh, with East Bay. Yeah, East North Bay. I grew East up in North Vallejo. Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of cool to see the a lot of the stuff that we either take for granted or we all just kind of know in the back of our minds was is made right here. Well, now we do know, and now other people know. Yeah, what are we gonna go invent? Uh, Fruffles. <laughs> You're really all about froffles, aren't you? I do like froffles. All right. Well, there's one other mention I wanted to do. Ooh. Okay. Honorable mention. Okay. Honorable La Vic mention. sauce. La Vic. I don't nobody know what La Vic sauce is. Well, maybe they've heard of the orange sauce, San Jose orange sauce. If you've been to San Jose, you've heard of orange sauce. And now they've heard of it. Okay. Well, you want to talk about it because you're the one that really, I mean, I really enjoy it too, but. All right. So for whoever is not in San Jose, because we have a lot of people that listen that are not from San Jose, San Jose has this famous thing called orange sauce. And there's sort of like two rival taquerias that make this stuff. Uh, But La Vic's, La Victoria is this taqueria chain that makes this stuff. And it's, it's orange, but creamy and it's spicy and savory and. And delicious. Delicious. I don't know. I don't know what's in it, but it's supposed amazing. to be vegetarian. That's what they say. Yeah. But it ta- sort of tastes like chorizo drippings in it. It kind of does taste like that. But yeah. yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. We need to go get some. So, do you have history of that, or you just wanted to call? I it just wanted to call it out, just because we like orange sauce. Yeah. Okay. So basically, this was just free advertising for La Victoria. Pretty much. Okay, that's fine. I'm Send fine with us that. A burrito. Well, that's our show for this week. Uh, music for the show is by Adi Goldstein and Drew Me Too Ban off from Pond 5. Pond 5. And our opening vocal jingle is by the great Chad Conselmo. Thanks, Chad. Uh, if you guys like what you're hearing on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a tweet. I am at Solvis Design. I am at TechnoMCR. And we are at Mike Stevecast. Yeah. Thanks for liking and subscribing to the show. If you guys like what you hear, uh, give us a review on Apple Podcasts because uh, your reviews help the show get bumped up so more people can see it. So thanks for listening. And until next week, see you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.